So we're continuing our series, God at Work, where I hope I can help you see God at your work. And so I've been doing Take Your Preacher to Work Day. If you'd like me to do that in the next few weeks, you can email Cheryl at pvcc.org. But this week, I went to an engineering firm that is led by uh, James Arbuckle. And as soon as I got to this engineering firm, there's, there's several PV people that work there, uh, Mike Watson, Mark Rickett, James Arbuckle, and Brett Mahan, who I know really well, Listen, I did him and Mary Kate's premarital counseling and wedding. And uh, he decided, since I was coming, he would make a banner. If you could put that up. This is the banner that was hanging in this engineer firm <laughs> with 70 people who don't know me. This is not requested, needed, or wanted if I come to your work. And he reached out to Leslie to get the most embarrassing pictures that he could. And so Leslie reached out to my preacher friends and they sent her like a hundred pictures. And so I don't know this is happening. I go to the work and um, anyway, uh, this is the next picture is the PV people who were there, Mike, James, and Mark. But Brett wasn't there that day because he was sick, which is unfortunate because he couldn't be in a picture. So I reached out to his wife. <laughs> if you could, <laughs> here's our good friend, Brett. <laughs> oh, I wanted to show my friends what his face looked like. So, but while I was there, I got to talk to um, some PV people about how they see God at their work. So Mike Watson has been working for decades to improve economic opportunities in the central Arkansas area. And he's doing that so that people can have access to jobs and resources and opportunities. I got to talk to Mark Rickett and Brother Mark, one of his driving passions in his life is to do conservation projects. He's not interested in paving paradise to put up a parking lot. He thinks God is the best artist and he wants to work alongside what God has already done. So creating things like hiking trails and things that do low impact things to the environment and creation. Um, I asked James Arbuckle, who is the leader of this firm, uh, what he sees them doing. He says, our work here serves to help improve people's lives. And so I just want to show you some of the things that they've done. This is their concept of the Sherwood Community Park. Uh, this is the Conway Soccer Complex that they've done. These are some baseball fields that they've made in our state. This is the hiking trails that they've made. These are their values. And this is a water supply and treatment facility. In other words, blind to most of us as we interact with each other in the state, and they've worked outside of the state as well, but blind to most of us are these followers of Jesus who have, as we're interacting with the world, hiking on trails, playing softball, soccer, whatever, are these followers of Jesus who are working to help improve people's lives. And that is, in the story the Bible is telling, a calling and a ministry. Now, that raises the question. If that's a ministry, then what is it that I do? And why... Church matter. Why does church matter? I mean, if, if God, serving God in your work is a way that you can serve God and do ministry, then why are we all here this morning? It's a great question. I'm glad I asked it. Because church is not the only place you go to meet God. It's the place you go to learn how to meet God everywhere else. And without church... 
we lose the gospel eyes to see what we're doing as the ministry that it is. Uh, a few years ago, I got to hang out with um, Larry James. Brother Larry was a preacher for decades. He graduated from Harding. Um, he preached in Texas and in Louisiana for years. And about 15 years ago, he started a nonprofit in Dallas called City Square. And I highly recommend City Square. I love this nonprofit. It's a, it, it ministers to people without housing. And Brother Larry is just a gospel-centered guy. And he said, one of the problems preachers have, one of the mistakes preachers make is, do you know every Sunday, and I don't know a lot of places like this, do you know every Sunday, people from every sector of society gather together. That's judges and lawyers and and doctors and artists and teachers. That's people who work in retail and people who work in, in the service industry. All these people gather together And if the church isn't helping them connect what they do on Sunday with what they do Monday through Friday, then the church is missing out on the heart of what the gospel is trying to do in our lives. So let me give you some examples. Sometimes I'll talk to accountants who can't see their job as a ministry. But if Jesus is right, then you know people's hearts better than the best counselor. Because you know where their heart is. You can see it on paper. You can have, you have something to say to them. You have a gospel way to interact with them. Sometimes I talk with car mechanics who don't see how their service is a ministry. And you dig a little deeper and you find out, and and this has happened several times. You dig it a little deeper and you find out that for years they've been servicing cars for single mothers for free or at deeply discounted rates. Or they've been trying to be honest and have integrity when they deal with something as fundamental as transportation for people. So here's the way that uh, John, w., um, John W. Gardner says this. The society which scorns excellence in plumbing because plumbing is a humble activity and tolerates shoddiness in philosophy because philosophy is an exalted activity will have neither good plumbing nor good philosophy. Neither its pipes nor its theories will hold water. <laughs> I think that's right. And one of the things about all these different groups coming together is a gospel-centered set, a set of eyes will help you see that your job has dignity and so does other people. So does the waitress, so does the stay-at-home mom. A lot of times churches have been called anti-intellectual and, and sometimes that's true. Sometimes we refuse to learn from people who have spent their lives trying to learn a specific discipline um, because, uh, you know, they're anti-elitism or whatever. But there's an anti-intellectualism that can go both ways. Sometimes the person with the PhD gets too big for their britches and doesn't, is not able to learn from the plumber or the stay-at-home parent. And the gospel gives us new eyes to see. What do you have that you have not received? The gifts you have, the talents you have that you offer the world, the, the money, does, it, the gospel equalizes it. It helps us learn from each other because we've all been given the, you're unrepeatable. 
You as a person are unrepeatable. God gave you unique gifts and talents and God in his sovereign grace gave those gifts, gave other gifts and talents to other people. The churches where the plumber and the philosopher can rub shoulders together and lay their gifts before God. It is viewing your work through the lens of the gospel. One of my favorite New York Times columnists is a guy named David Brooks. David Brooks actually came up, became a Jesus follower a few years ago because of the ministry of Tim Keller, a pastor who recently died, who pastored for over 30 years in Manhattan. And David Brooks, a couple of years ago, went to Stanford University and spent a week with college students. And this is a long quote, but it's an important one. He wrote an article about his time there with the young adults he was hanging out with. He said, many of these students seem to have a blinkered view of their options. There's crass but affluent investment banking. Then there's the poor but noble nonprofit world. And then there's the world of high-tech startups, which magically provides money and coolness simultaneously. But there was little interest in or awareness of ministry, like church work, the military, the academy, government service, or the zillion other sectors. Furthermore, few students showed any interest in working for a company that actually makes products. Community service has become a patch for morality. Many people today have not been given vocabularies to talk about what virtue is, what character consists of, and in which way excellent... Uh, lies. So they just talk about community service and they forget. And whatever field you go in, you'll face greed, frustration, and failure. You may find your life challenged by depression, alcoholism, infidelity, your own stupidity, and self-indulgence. Furthermore, around what ultimate purpose should your life revolve? That's what we're talking about. How for a Jesus follower, there is an orientation of life that everything else follows in. Are you capable of a heroic self-sacrifice or is life just a series of achievement hoops? You can devote your life to community service and still be a total schmuck. You can spend your life on Wall Street and be a hero. Understanding heroism and schmuckdom requires fewer Excel spreadsheets, more Dostoevsky, and the book of Job. Notice what he's saying. Because... There is a narrative out there, especially in the secular world, that basically you have a couple of options for status. One, make a ton of money. Then people have to see you as important. Or two, askew that and go do, join the Peace Corps. And both of those ways, that, those, those can be fine, but both of those ways are too small of a story to give your life to. And this is at the heart of what it means to have a calling according to Christian theology. Remember, a calling is a calling if someone else calls you to do it and you do it for their sake and not for your own. There's an internal calling in the Christian faith. I really have a drive to do this. There's an ex- and there's an external calling. And what you're looking for, people saying like, hey, have you ever thought about it? You're pretty good at And what you're looking for in life is where those two things overlap. And if you do it, Primarily for other people's sake and not for your own selfish motives. These, this is the virtue of a vocation. Students, young adults, kids. This is not something I'm hearing from a lot of other places in the world. But this is the way to a meaningful life and a joyful, even in hard times. It's to see the work of your hands as more than just to earn money or retirement but as a way of making the world a better place for the people around you. How many of y'all remember 2008? 
I uh, had retirement in 2008 because after I graduated college, Leslie and I would not have done that because, you know, you'd get more money if you, uh, uh, immediately you'd get more money if you didn't set aside money for retirement. But my brother was like, you got to do this. And so I did. And so like five years into retirement, I'm look or into uh, working, I look at my retirement one week and in 2008, I look at it the next week and I'm like, oh, that's like half of what it was. Anybody else have that experience? And the more you uh, look into what happened, you realize it wasn't just market forces. It was incredible selfishness on the account of many, many people. Bank executives. There was just incredible selfishness. And it's easy to hate on people like Bernie Madoff, the, the guy who did the Ponzi scheme. But the truth, I've come to see Bernie Madoff and those bank executives the same way I see Adam and Eve. Yeah, they messed up the world for everybody else, but I'm pretty sure I might have done the same thing if I had the opportunity. Because what we're seeing is a glimpse into the human condition, especially if you don't have a sense of calling and vocation in what you do. It's something the Bible calls sin. And you don't need an MBA from Stanford to see that. So the very thing that those corporate executives were doing is a system that many of us are working in today. And so the challenge is how to see and live out the gospel in a world like that. So if you've got your Bibles, turn to Genesis chapter 41. Genesis is this amazing first book of the Bible, and the Bible starts out hot, right? Like it's just got all kinds of adventure, some great, great stuff. But the longest story in Genesis is the story of one guy, a guy named Joseph. It takes up about a third of the book of Genesis. And it's brilliant. It's filled with like betrayal and redemption. And um, Joseph grows up in a family of 11 brothers and one sister. And he's the favorite of his dad. And that doesn't go over well with his siblings. In fact, they hate Joseph because of it. So at one point, Joseph is going to check on their work because they're out in the, uh, the fields working. And Joseph is, you know, chilling with his dad. Of course he is. And his dad's like, hey, go check on the brothers. And so he goes. And while they see him coming, they decide, we're tired of this. That guy's coming to see how hard we're working so he can go tattletale the dad. So while they see him coming, they're like, let's kill him. So they grab him and they throw him in a pit. <clears throat> and while he's in the pit, they're like, you know what? <sighs> Change of heart. Guys, he is our brother after all. Let's not kill him. Let's just sell him into slavery. And so they do. They, you, you think your job is hard? You think your life is bad? They literally sell him down the Nile. And he goes to Egypt. He's in uh, slavery. And, and he gets falsely accused. He gets thrown into prison. And for prison, he, he stays there in prison for a long time. And one of the best scenes... In the Bible is when Joseph gets let out of prison. He spent several years in prison. He, uh, God's given him the gift of being able to interpret dreams. So he interprets some dreams for a couple of other guys. They form like this weird prison dream club or something like that. And he's, he's interpreting their dreams. And then one of the guys gets executed, which he predicted. And the other guy gets released to go back to Pharaoh. They both had worked for Pharaoh, and uh, the other guy gets released, and he promises Joseph on his way out, I won't forget you. And then he forgets him. He totally forgets Joseph until years later, this is a long time in prison, Pharaoh, the most powerful man in the world, 
has some very disturbing dreams about some fat and thin cows that eat one another. And it's weird, but you should read it. And Pharaoh wants to know, what does this dream mean? So he asks his sorcerers and his workers, can anybody interpret a dream? And nobody can. But then all of a sudden, the cupbearer, the guy who had been in prison with Joseph, was like, oh yeah, there's this one guy. And so he sends for Joseph. They get him out of prison. They dust him off. And in just a few short hours, he goes from wasting away in a dungeon to standing in the halls of power. Now, before you hear what he does, think about what you do when you get called into the boss's office or when you get that opportunity for advancement or destruction. Think about how you respond in those moments. Think about Joseph. The problem with the story of Joseph, because a lot of y'all grew up in church, y'all know this story. The problem is you can't smell the prison. The problem is it sounds like some VBS story And you forget about how just devastated Joseph would be. I mean, this guy's got every reason in the world not to believe in God, right? I don't think you could put a deconstruction story up against Joseph's that would stand. Everything, he had so much potential, so much life ahead of him, and now he spent a decade in prison. And before that, in slavery. And most of us would have done anything to get out of that situation. And this is his moment. But here's what he does. In Genesis chapter 41, starting in verse 14. So Pharaoh sent for Joseph, and he was quickly brought from the dungeon. When he had shaved and changed his clothes, he came before Pharaoh. And Pharaoh said to Joseph, I had a dream, and no one can interpret it. But I have heard it said of you that when you hear a dream, you can interpret it. Now pause there for a second and think what you would say. You're right. Yes, sir, Mr. Pharaoh. I'm number one dream interpreter. I'm really good at this. And Joseph says, no. Which is not what Pharaoh was expecting to hear. Joseph said, I cannot do it. But God will give the Pharaoh the answer he desires. Now, this answer is so epic for several reasons. Because think about this. Pharaoh has just killed recently one of the guys that used to work for him, that Joseph knows. Joseph knows he is on very thin ice. He is standing in, the, in front of the most powerful man in the world. And more than that, he says, I can't do it. But God can do it. You know who everybody in that room thought was God? Pharaoh. And in this moment, Joseph is bearing witness to a God who hasn't protected him from suffering, from slavery, from false accusations, from prison. He's not, he, he knows he's standing in front of a guy who can snap his fingers and Joseph will die a horrible death. But yet this this guy who still smells like prison is telling Pharaoh, there is one true God and he can do what you want. But the subtext is, Pharaoh, you ain't him. Here's why this story matters so much. I did jail ministry in Fort Worth for several years. And I can tell you, almost everybody in jail 
comes to the Lord. So much so that it's often mocked. Oh, you found jail Jesus or whatever. And in my experience, I don't take that for granted or belittle it. Because when people hit bottom, they tend to look up. And one of the things about this job is I get to do stuff like that. And then also get to hang out with people the world calls really important. People with millions and millions of dollars, people with big titles, CEO, you know, those kind of things. I've been getting to do that for 20 years. I've had opportunities to rub shoulders with lots of different kinds of people and lots of different kinds of groups. And guess which one is the most apt at seeing God work in their life? Because sometimes the most dangerous place for the people of God is success. But not for Joseph. Because when his moment of opportunity comes, Joseph proves to be the same guy in Pharaoh's hall that he was in the dungeon. So what does that look like for you? Tim Keller, that pastor who recently died, tells a story in his book, Every Good Endeavor, about someone who goes to his church who was a VP at a very prestigious bank. This book was released shortly after 2008. And so this was a story that really resonated with me. He tells a story about a man who goes to his church, who's a VP at a very successful bank, and he leads a team of investors and um, people who, like, take opportunity and maximize it. And at one point... That team decided, the team he led, decided that they were going to uh, work with a payday lending company. Now, payday lending, uh, also sometimes known as predatory lending, uh, it, it gives loans to people who struggle to get loans, but at exorbitant interest rates that sometimes can crush and even destroy people's financial future. I don't know what you think about payday lending. I'm personally against it, but I get the other side of that. But I'm telling you this story. The guy says to his team, he knows that if he says, we're not going to do this because I'm a Christian, it's going to um, rob the team he's leading of this opportunity. And they're the ones that brought it to him and they're, they're in it to make money. And so this guy says to his team, I'm a follower of Jesus. I know that y'all are not, but I believe Jesus is the son of God and God raised Jesus from the dead and that God has a special place in his heart for the poor. And I cannot in good conscience be a part of this opportunity. However, because this is a thing y'all brought to me, and because this is an opportunity that you're pursuing, I'm going to go ahead and allow it, but I'm going to recuse myself from this and from the bonuses and the financial rewards that come with it. Because I'm a Christian. I don't know what that looks like for you. But I know it's got to look something like that. Because in a post-Christian world, to, be a, to be, the, be a person like Joseph, to be the same kind of person in the halls of power as you would be in the dungeon, is to be faithful to God's calling on your life. All of it. A few years ago, I, I went to Nepal and I was work, we were working with this great ministry, Eternal Threads, that helps to rescue um, women from human trafficking um, in, in Nepal. See, what happens in India, which is a bordering country to Nepal, is that uh, racism, by the way, is not just uniquely American problem. It's a, it's a human problem. 
And in India, Nepalese people are thought to be kind of less than. Not by everybody, but, you know, enough that it's kind of in the culture. And so what happens is that um, Nepalese women are trafficked. Sometimes they'll get uh, Nepalese men who they'll pay well to pretend to be a boyfriend or a, a prospective husband or, you know, there's a lot of different sneaky ways they do this, but then they'll traffic them across the border and they'll use them to populate the brothels. And so there's this ministry that Eternal Threads that has these safe houses over there and, and border guards that are manned by people who had been previously trafficked. Anyway, I go over there to work with this ministry because this person went to church with us and it's an amazing ministry. And when I come back, a friend of ours, Leslie and I, is from college um, who lived in Searcy and ran a restaurant there, the Lunchbox. It was around for a decade. It was a great, great restaurant. Their, their business was thriving, but our friend called and said, hey, the next time you go on a mission trip, I really want to come. And I started asking why, and she said, well, you know, I, I, I like this job, but it's about money, and that's about serving the Lord. She loved her job, but she felt guilty about serving chicken fried steak to customers and not orphans in another country. So let's talk about that. Dorothy Sayers, who's like a female C.S. Lewis, they were peers, and she's amazing, you should read Dorothy Sayers. She says this about work. The Christian understanding of work is that work is not primarily a thing one does to live, but the thing one lives to do. It is, or it should be, the full expression of the worker's faculties, the medium in which he offers himself to God. The majority of time, when most of us work, we probably tell some kind of subtext that our work doesn't matter or that it only matters for making money, supporting the family, maybe giving back to the church. But our work can be the very way we partner with God the most in our life. Okay, so my friend Joy, she owns this restaurant. She wants to go on a mission trip. Um, the, she heard about this. She was like, next time you go internationally, I definitely want to do that. And, and her, fr- her husband, Jay, we're, both ta- we're all talking at the same time. About five minutes after she tells me this, her friend Jay tells me about this refugee woman that they had just hired, who had been, or they had hired a year ago, who had been rescued from a brothel in another country. She had been given asylum in America. They had trained her how to, how to work, given her the dignity of a job that she enjoyed and flourished in. And honestly, it's like God made this really easy to connect the dots, but they didn't see it. The irony of it. Because they had the wrong definition of mission. If you carve up the world into mission, which is something that happens in other parts of the world, and work, something we do to survive, you miss the heart of the story the Bible is telling. God made this world, and God made central Arkansas too. Just because you live here doesn't mean it's not a part of the world God is trying to reach. So it's not wrong to enjoy your job. God made you for serving Him and serving others. And sometimes that's breading chicken breasts to feed your neighbor. And sometimes it involves working to deliver someone from you know, human trafficking. And sometimes it's working to give that young woman a job when she's here. It's all mission work, or it can be if you do all your work for God. So we, we go to church with a uh, couple, um, Will and Alyssa Copeland. They have seven kids, 
And Will grew up here. Will, they both grew up here, Will and Alyssa. And you may know Will. He's a neurosurgeon. And he had the American dream. The Copelands had the American dream wide open to them. In fact, while they've been here the last nine months, uh, Will has gone up and, and worked at, like, the Mayo Clinic. Is that right, Will? Mayo Clinic? Yeah. He's done that just to have resources here. But what they've done, for the last 10 years, they've lived in Kenya. And they've worked with uh, people in that area to develop neurosurgery in, in Kenya for those people. And so Will uh, and his other neurosurgeon friend from Kenya, who's here for the first time in the States for the first time, are going to come up here and tell us just a little bit about their job. But while they're coming up here, here's what I want you to know. The reason they did that is because the American dream was too small for them. And they did not check out of doing their job. They decided to do it differently. And that's something you can do in West Africa or West Little Rock. So Will and Emmanuel, if you guys could come on up. And can we give them a warm Pleasant Valley welcome? So I told Jonathan in the first service I was dogging him. The irony is not lost on me that, you know, during this season and particularly on the Sunday when he's uh, talking uh, about the truth that to do mission work, you don't have to forfeit a salary and move to another country that he gives the stage to the, the volunteer neurosurgeon to Kenya. So, um, <laughs> but, but today is truly a really special day for me um, in that I get to introduce to you my dear friend and brother, Dr. Emmanuel Wafula Wakesa. Uh, if you, oh, good, you've got the slides up. So when in 2016, uh, my family and I uh, moved to Tenwick Hospital in Kenya. We didn't know what all the Lord would have in store for us. We did know, uh, and you can show the next slide, we did know that there would be no shortage of people uh, in need of neurosurgical care because in sub-Saharan Africa there's an estimated one neurosurgeon for every two million people, whereas here in the U.S. there's about one for every 60,000. If you go to the, the next slide... And we also knew that I would have the opportunity to interact with general surgery and orthopedic residents, trainees, because Tenwick Hospital is a training site for the Pan-African Academy of Christian Surgeons, or PACS. And PACS has 24 general surgery and orthopedic training programs in 11 countries in Africa. And, and the mission of PACS is to train African surgeons to provide excellent surgical care to those most in need, um, and also through a spiritual curriculum that's incorporated into their training to equip them to use their, their craft, their vocation as mission. You can go to the, the next slide. What I, I didn't know was that in 2020, uh, we would start the first and still only PAX neurosurgery program in all of Africa, and that Emmanuel would be our first resident, our first trainee. And so the next slide here, uh, before I continue, as is customary in Kenya, I'm going to give the microphone to Emmanuel, and he's going to bring his, his greetings to you. Thank you. Thank you, Dr. Copeland. Um, praise the Lord. Amen. That, that's better. We'll do it the Kenyan way now. So when I say praise the Lord, I would like to hear a better amen and an amen with energy. And then when I say God is good, then you say all the time. 
And all the time. Praise the Lord. Praise God. Amen. Um, Emmanuel, I'm so glad to be here and to join you in this service. I'm a resident of Dr. Will Copeland. Soon to graduate in six months' time, I'll graduate as a neurosurgeon. And I thank the Lord, really, really thank the Lord for what he has done to us uh, so far. I want to read for you just a quick verse, and I'll be very brief. Just allow me that time a little bit. In Hebrews uh, chapter 6, this is different from what I read in uh, the first service, but I'll read it. Uh, Hebrews chapter 6 and verse 10. It says here that, For God is not unjust to forget your work and labor of love, which you have shown towards his name in that you have ministered to the saints and do minister to the saints. If you see it clearly there, the Lord is really interested in our hearts and it's the labor of love. I had never seen it that way before, but when this scripture I read it some time back, I asked myself, labor of love, do I labor enough to the Lord in love? Do I give my love completely to God? Do I labor? You know, labor is hard work. Am I working hard in love to love God? Am I working hard to please the Lord? A while back last year in December, there is this tradition in Spain where around Christmas time, the wise men, three people pretend to be wise men in every city and they go giving gifts to children. Around that time, I had a song where a child was singing. He desired to be among the wise men that were giving gifts to the Lord. So he was really relishing that moment and just singing the song. And then he sang this song and it was interpreted to me. And where the child was saying that, I desire to, I do not have enough money to buy these expensive gifts to bring to you, Lord. But, you know, just like the wise men, they brought very expensive gifts to the Lord. But, but I give you what I have. I'll beat the drum because that is what I can do. I'll beat the drum for the Lord. And I'll beat my drum for you. And in that song, it's beating the drum. And it's a joyous, joyful moment. And I, in my mind now, I think that is labor of love towards the Lord. Dr. Will Copeland beat his drum of neurosurgery and he came to Africa. I didn't know our paths will cross, but what he had, what the Lord had given him was the skills. And with those skills, he has impacted us as residents in Kenya to be able to touch others with the same love. He has equipped us. The Lord equipped him. He continues to equip us. And through that skills, we are able to do so much. We are able to reach out for the patients that we serve. As we operate on them, we minister to them. We tell them about the love of God. I know there are so many among you who are beating their drums of love. It entails so much. 
some of you are beating it alongside Will Copeland by just giving, giving and enabling them to spread the gospel and to equip African surgeons. And some of you, it's different, just the way that you're serving the Lord in your best way. Though you may not be a preacher like, like him, <laughs> but you know, give the Lord that heart of service and beat your drum for him. He's, he's, he's going to reward you. Praise the Lord. It says here that he's not unjust to forget your labor of love. So labor in love with your heart. I want to thank you so much, those who are supporting the work that Dr. Will Copeland is doing and the rest of the missionaries. It is working. It is fruitful. Praise God. On behalf of all the other residents and the department, I bring you all the greetings. And on behalf of my wife, uh, I bring you greetings from Kenya. May the Lord bless you so much. We love you, and we know that you love us. God bless you. So, Emmanuel's going off script on us. I joked with the first group that I told him last night what we'd be doing. He said, oh, the, the pulpit is a warm place. So if we had a third service, I think, you know, we'd be here uh, like he's gaining momentum. So, <laughs> you know, when people hear that um, what our family does, that we moved to Kenya and that I volunteer at a hospital there, they, they often don't ask, well, tell me more about what you do. Um, they kind of look at me a bit strange and they want to know why. You know, why in the world would you move with your seven kids and do this? Why would Emmanuel and Daphne and their two girls um, be planning on upon finishing his graduation in December when he could, you know, he's going to be a fully trained, independent neurosurgeon, could go back to Nairobi? Why are they planning to join us at Tenwick um, and join in the mission of PAX? And why, would, why should any of you care about how you can use your work as mission. I mean, you've got expenses to keep up with in retirement to save for and a good reputation you've worked hard to keep at the company and those things. Why should we care about work as mission? Is it, is it just because God wants us to? I, man, I think it's so much better than that. Did you know that I was dead in my sin? Yeah. I mean, like my own sin. Anger, pride, lust, selfish ambition. Did you know that God, because of his great love for me, like we sang earlier, because he loved me so, sent his son to earth to die for me? Did you know that his spirit, the spirit of God himself, resides in me and is at work in me to make, him, make me more like Jesus? And that this Jesus is coming back here again to earth. He's, he's coming here. And he will raise me to new life. And I will be with Him and the Father and the Spirit and with you all, my fellow believers, in a new creation for all eternity. I mean, if that's real, really real, and I think as Christians we have good reasons that hold up to scrutiny, that give us confidence that it is. If that's real, that's the most wonderful and awesome and life-changing news ever. And so all the things I thought was important or primary about my job the salary it provides or the social status it gives or the retirement it helps me plan for, like all of that becomes so secondary. And instead, my job is primarily about how to share this wonderful news with others. And so if the last few weeks or today you've been sitting here and you think, man, I had no idea how I'd use my job to honor the Lord. 
don't think so much about the job and how you can do that. Man, focus here and all that God has done in your life through Christ. And before you know it, like it's just an overflow. And the, you have eyes to see the world differently and the di- desires of your heart change. And your work will become mission. I stop there, but I'm going to ask Emmanuel to close us in prayer. And I think Jonathan has a short word after that. So Emmanuel, will you pray for us? Yeah, let's pray. Father, thank you, God, because you love us. Thank you for gathering us together. And you say in your word, Lord, that um, where two or three are gathered, there you are. Thank you for being amid us this day, O oh God. And Father, I also want to thank you for, your, for the abounding love that is in this church and the way, Lord, they continue to abound in service, in grace, and in reaching out. And just, Lord, that in serving you and even in giving their hearts to you, O oh God, and supporting missionaries and different workers of the kingdom of God. Father, I thank you because you will continue to enrich them and equip each one of them, O Lord, in your service. Thank you for the work that they continue to support across the world in different places, O God. And even the work that they continue to do in in their city, in Arkansas, and in the United States, uh, Lord, indeed the, the harvest is plenty. We pray that you raise workers, O oh Father, even amidst this, uh, this church, that, Lord, people who will continue to burn for the work of the Lord. And now, because, Lord, you, you have heard our prayer, I pray, Lord, that your presence will also abound amidst them as they continue to serve you, as they continue, my Father, to, to explore ways to reach out in this community, in this generation, O oh God. We thank you and we honor you. Bless them, O oh God, for in Jesus' name we pray. Amen. Amen. Can we honor them as thank you for being here, y'all. I wanted to do that today because we have a lot of people in the medical profession and sometimes it can become hard to see God at work. But God is described as the great physician. So let's try to be good ones. God is describing ministry as binding up the wounds of those who are hurting. So let's try to do that for him. Don't buy into the myth of salt water. That it has to happen overseas for it to be about ministry. I wish I could go to every one of your jobs. I wish I could, you know, get to see the accountants and the stay-at-home parents, every teacher, every volunteer. I can't, but God can. For the longest time when we talk about mission, we say you either go, give, or pray. And there is truth to that as far as giving and praying, but the truth is, according to the gospel, mission is not something that happens there. It's wherever the people of Jesus are. Because the greatest commandment and the Great Commission are not cafeteria style for each believer to choose. They are a way of life.